my sisters used to ask me, what were you laughing about in your room all by yourself? And I said, oh, I was reading Newman. I was reading his letters and diaries. He has the most wonderful sense of humor. My father would read uh, Belloc and Chesterton and Newman. And uh, when I was a little boy of eight, nine years old, uh, I would you know, kind of sit on his lap while he was reading. And so I, I began my adventure with Newman when I was still in grammar school. <laughs> they say that when Newman preached in Oxford, the undergraduates, one of the common remarks was that, you know, he was speaking right to my heart as if he was preaching to me. And I noticed that about his writings, that, you know, in reading, you know, it seems like he was speaking right to my heart. I first started reading Newman uh, because my boss, um, at the time, Bishop Conley loved Newman, and um, so much of what he talked about was Newman, and I just started um, reading Newman's homilies and letters and histories and theology, and his hope, Newman's enduring hope in the church, even when he was discouraged by the church's leaders, even when he was let down, Newman had faith in the church and he had hope in God's providence and that just has been such an encouragement for me. Newman's trust has resonated with me and called me on and really transformed my vision. I think, I hope that I see the church the way that he does. Newman, blessed John Henry Cardinal Newman, was a convert, a priest, a theologian, a poet even in the 19th century, he will be named a saint on October the 13th. And he isn't everywhere a household name. And even in places where he is a household name, he's a hard guy to understand. But I think that will change. In his time, Newman was an intensely personal man. He was a friend. He valued friendship. He valued personal relationships. He worked through them. And we found that most everyone that we spoke with about Newman had this personal connection with him, even though they were separated from him by more than a century. This week, we'll talk about some of those personal connections. We'll share the story of a Chicago woman who asked for Newman's intercession when she experienced pregnancy complications, and he came through. Then we'll tell you a little bit more about John Henry Newman and two movements that continue to carry out his Christian vision even today. You're listening to CNA Newsroom, the podcast that brings you the people behind the headlines. I'm your host and CNA's editor-in-chief, J.D. Flynn. Stay with us. You've reached the CNA Newsroom. CNA Newsroom. CNA Newsroom. CNA Newsroom. Welcome to CNA Newsroom. I first heard of Cardinal Newman in 2000. I caught a show on EWTN just by accident. This is Melissa Villalobos. She lives in Chicago with her husband and their seven children. I was getting ready for work and I was ironing my clothes and the show came on and these priests and scholars were talking about him and his life and what a holy man he was and what a tremendous influence he had on the church and on other people in his life. I was really taken by it, and I thought, this man is so amazing. But I didn't even start to pray to him at the time. A year passed, 
And one day, her husband brought home two holy cards featuring Cardinal Newman's image. That's when Melissa's devotion to Cardinal Newman really began. I put these cards in our house. I put one up in our family room and one in our bedroom. And I would pass by his image throughout the day. And I would look into his eyes and I would just pray to him and I would talk to him as a mother. And I felt like his expression was matching my emotions at the time. If I felt sad for some reason, he looked sympathetic. If I felt joy, he looked pleased. (laughs) And I just felt like we were really living life together. Eventually, she started looking up Newman's writings online. And it was like finding gold in the backyard. He was every bit as holy and loving as I had suspected he was by looking at his face. He had such a tremendous affection for ordinary people, which I discovered by reading his letters. And I felt like I could be one of those ordinary people in his life. In 2013, Melissa got pregnant. But in the first trimester, she started bleeding a lot. What I had was a condition where my placenta had become partially ripped and detached from the uterine wall. It was a life-threatening problem because I could hemorrhage to death. There was no medicine or procedure that would help Melissa and her unborn baby. Her doctor prescribed strict bed rest. Melissa did her best to comply with her doctor's orders, but she had four young kids at home, and her husband was about to leave town on a work trip. And so when I woke up on the morning of May 15th, I woke up in bed in a pool of blood, and he was already gone for his trip. I didn't know if I should call 911 right away or wait. She decided to get the kids ready for breakfast, And then she locked herself in the bathroom to try to figure out what to do. And then I collapsed on the floor, and I knew it was time to call 911. Unfortunately, though, somehow I did not have my cell phone with me. I couldn't believe it. Melissa considered shouting for her kids to bring her phone to her, but she worried that the shouting would cause heavier bleeding or somehow hurt the baby. And that's when I decided to reach out to Cardinal Newman, and I said, please, Cardinal Newman, make the bleeding stop. And just then, immediately it stopped. And I stood up and I smelled roses that filled the bathroom air. And I said, oh, Cardinal Newman, did you just make the bleeding stop? Thank you. And then there was this second burst of roses. And I knew I was cured. And I knew Gemma, my daughter, was okay. She went to an ultrasound that afternoon. I had so many of these because of the high-risk nature of the pregnancy. And the doctor saw that there was no more bleeding, and he was amazed. And he said, the baby looks perfect. All the previous ultrasounds were so depressing. The doctor said, you will probably miscarry. If you're lucky, she'll make it to the, you know, the placenta could barely hold up to the third trimester, and she'll be born, but she'll be really small, and she'll have medical problems. Thanks be to Cardinal Newman and to God that I was cured and Gemma was born completely healthy. Melissa waited until after Gemma's birth to reach out to Father Ignatius Harrison, the priest who was responsible for working on Cardinal Newman's cause for sainthood. I just uh, wrote a letter and then he came to Chicago and met my husband and I and our daughter Gemma and I started providing all of the medical records and eventually they interviewed my doctor and the nurse and other doctors and um, did a very thorough investigation. Melissa said she was told to keep the potential miracle a secret. She got brief updates on the investigation maybe every six months or so but mostly she was kind of in the dark. 
there was really no one to ask to, to say, well, how does this usually work? You know, sometimes if you're going through something in your life, you say, oh, well, how did it work for you? But there was no one to ask to say, well, when you were miraculously cured, how long did it take to hear from the postulator? <laughs> As her daughter Gemma got older, the daughter whose life, she says, was saved by Cardinal Newman's prayers, Melissa's family prayed every single day for Newman's canonization. And then last February, Pope Francis announced that the Vatican had approved the miracle. John Henry Newman would be canonized. I'm surprised at how many people tell me that they're happy to know that God still performs miracles. Um, I'm glad they know that. I feel like I've known that, and I want others to know that God has never abandoned us. I know it's hard to believe in miracles because we don't always get what we want, um, but we know that God the Father and His love always gives us what's best for us. Melissa, her daughter Gemma, and the rest of their family will go to Rome for the canonization. But I just love him dearly, and I hope that anybody who needs help, whether you're a mother or a student or anything, a convert, I mean, he can really touch the lives of so many people. I just hope they'll reach out to him and um, see a friend in him. He's so loving and, and amazing. We'll be right back. Hi there. I'm Ed Condon, D.C. editor for the Catholic News Agency. I don't like a lot of things. I do not like windmills, or kittens, or shorts, or white claw, whatever that is. But I do like listening to CNA Newsroom and CNA Editor's Desk. Every Friday on Editor's Desk, you can hear me and the other CNA editors take a longer look at some of the stories that made the news this week as we break down the context behind the headlines, all while JD rings bells at us as we try and talk. Occasionally, the other editors even try their hand at a little game I like to call Yes or No. If you enjoy listening to the best, most informed commentary on the week's headlines from a Catholic perspective, search for CNA Editor's Desk on your favorite podcast app. And be sure to hit subscribe to be notified when we post new episodes. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Overcast, Spotify, and many more. And while you're at it, please be sure to subscribe to CNA Newsroom our companion podcast that brings you the people behind the headlines. Both of our shows are available wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the episode. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to CNA Newsroom. This week, we are talking about John Henry Cardinal Newman, who will be canonized a saint on October 13th. In our first segment, we talked about the miracle that led to his canonization, and now we want to tell you about the man behind the miracle. Who was John Henry Cardinal Newman? To answer that, here's our producer, Kate Vike. John Henry Newman was born in London in 1801. He was the oldest of six. He was raised Anglican. And at the age of 15, realized that he was called to lead a celibate life. And he thought probably to be a missionary to Africa, again, as an Anglican cleric. This is Father Peter Stravinskis. He's an oratorian and publisher of Newman House Press. But instead of going to Africa, Newman enrolled at Oxford University. After graduation, he began tutoring students at Oxford. Newman was ordained an Anglican priest at the age of 24. Around this time, his tutoring took on a new character. He began to form his students both intellectually and spiritually. He never saw his teaching only as passing on intellectual knowledge. He saw it as formation of the whole person. This is Sister Kathleen Dietz. She's a member of the Spiritual Family of the Work, 
a community of priests and religious who have worked for decades to advance Newman's cause for sainthood. A well-educated person is not somebody who can spout facts at us, but is somebody who knows how to think and who can use not only their reasoning, but also their religious convictions, also their virtue to convey the truth and to bring somebody closer to that truth. But this approach to education wasn't welcome at Oxford. One of his first major conflicts uh, as a professional was that professors at Oxford were jealous of the influence that he had, and they changed the entire system so that tutors were no longer responsible for the personal human formation of their students. It was only to be academic. They had actually became the 20th century approach to education, information without formation. And he wanted no part of that. And as a result, he resigned. Newman maintained his post as Vicar of St. Mary's, which was the university church in Oxford. The post included a mission church in Littlemore, a town just three miles from the center of Oxford. Today, it's considered part of Oxford. Littlemore was a very poor town. They didn't even have a church. Newman ended up building a church for the people there precisely because of his concern for them. He wanted them to have a place of worship, a place that was also there as a reminder of God. His care for the poor of Littlemore was not material alone. It was mostly, how do I help them to get out of a poverty of mind and a poverty of spirit. Newman also established a school in Littlemore, and he would teach catechesis to the young students there. So Newman had really quite a way of teaching them catechesis, so much so that some of the other Oxford dons used to walk out to Littlemore to listen to Newman teach. He really tried to instill that, that sense of the call to holiness in every individual, not just, you know, those university types, but, you know, every walk of life. This is Bishop James Conley of the Diocese of Lincoln. In 1833, Newman created the Oxford Movement. It was an attempt to reintroduce some elements of Catholicism back into the Anglican Church. All the while, Newman tested the truth of his Anglican beliefs by studying the Fathers of the Church. By his study of the Fathers of the Church, he came to see that the Anglican Church was no real church at all. Uh, he was trying to maintain what he called a via media, a middle course, a little Protestant, a little Catholic. <laughs> and at one point he said he realized that that vision was, and this is his word, pulverized by his, his study of the fathers of the church. Newman loved the church, period. I mean, he spent the first basically half of his life looking for the church. Where is the real church? Where is the church? that the fathers of the church speak about. And when he finally discovered that it is in the Catholic church, he knew he had to join that church. He couldn't not do it. Newman resigned from his post at St. Mary's in 1843 and preached his final sermon as an Anglican priest. Two years later, Newman converted to Catholicism. He had to give up everything. He had to leave everything behind knowing he was going to lose everything, because in Oxford in the 19th century, you could not be a Catholic and be a professor. And so he had reached the heights of really a career at Oxford, which is what you know he aspired to. And he gave that all up because you know he was following the truth. 
Newman brought many of his former Oxford students to the Catholic faith, too. Many of the young men whom he had taken under his wing ended up becoming Catholic before he did. And one of the reasons why he stayed out of the church as long as he did was he felt a pastoral responsibility to so many of these young people that he had been guiding. And uh, and he felt if he had become a Catholic uh, at that point, it would be, in effect, abandoning them. Newman knew he wanted to be a Catholic priest. He thought briefly about being a Jesuit. He thought briefly about being a redemptorist. This is Father Michael Darcy. He's provost of the Oratory of St. Philip Neri in Pittsburgh. Basically, he's the guy in charge. And then somebody, a guy named Cardinal Wiseman, put him onto the idea of the Oratory, and it immediately attracted him. And so that's how the Oratory of St. Philip Neri came to the English-speaking world. At the time of Newman's conversion, England was split from the rest of Catholic Europe. So the oratory never really had any any purchase in the English-speaking world, that is to say until Cardinal Newman, roughly 300 years after the founding of the oratory in Rome. The first oratory was founded by St. Philip Neri in the 16th century. An oratory is essentially a group of priests who live together in community. Sometimes they're joined by seminarians or lay Catholics. Members make no vows or promises. They're simply an agreement to live together and support each other. They have time for common prayer, and typically they share at least one meal a day. In the end, I believe that it was the basic structure of the oratory that appealed to him. This is Father John Paul Bivik. He's provost of the Cincinnati Oratory. Because it was extraordinarily similar to what his life was when he was an Anglican minister in Oxford and professor uh, there at the university. Um, in that it was a small community uh, that lived together, uh, that supported each other, uh, that didn't have uh, vows or the strictness of a structure of the Jesuits, for example, in his day, um, but rather provided a life that was extraordinarily similar to what he was used to in Oxford. Um, So it was sort of like a brotherhood, a family. He often called the oratory domestic circle, and I think he felt at home with that because of his... Uh, life prior to his conversion. Newman founded the first English-speaking oratory in Birmingham in 1848. The oratory eventually opened a school. Soon after, an associate of Newman's founded a second oratory in London. I think for a long time, those were the only two oratories in the English-speaking world. Newman's conversion to Catholicism didn't mean his life suddenly became extremely easy. In fact, he was met with suspicion after his conversion. As an Anglican, he was considered a crypto-Catholic. As a Catholic, many Catholics were suspicious of him and thought he was a Protestant mole trying to undermine the church. (laughs) He does defy all categories because he was a man of the Enlightenment and he took the very best of the Enlightenment philosophers and um, writers, but he was so grounded in the apostolic church that he defies any kind of categorizing. Even Rome always had some suspicion about him because of the fact he's a convert, but also they couldn't put him into the categories that most ecclesiastics were in if you know you were a Roman Catholic in the 19th century. In 1854, Newman went to Dublin to help establish the first Catholic university in Ireland. The project itself was a failure for Newman. But while he was in Dublin, he delivered a now-famous set of lectures collected in a volume titled Idea of a University. He had many, many failures, projects that were never seen to fruition, projects that were taken away from him, 
plans that never materialized. And even though he was disappointed, he never let that throw him off course. He was completely removed from that by the Irish bishops. And yet, look what we got from it. These discourses that he um, wrote became the sort of blueprint for the idea of university. At the age of 79, Newman was named a cardinal, and he took as his motto, heart speaks to heart. And when he became a cardinal, the members of his oratory said, well, what do you want us to call you now? And he said, the only title that's ever meant anything to me is father. After receiving his red hat, Newman continued to teach at the school attached to his oratory in Birmingham. He prepped students for state exams. He wrote plays in Latin for the students to perform. And he played, catch this, second fiddle in the school orchestra. In 1890, Newman died at Birmingham. He was buried at his oratory. In his lifetime, Newman penned more than 40 books and thousands of letters. To read Newman is to know Newman. In other words, he's never separated from his writings. He's not writing abstractly. Behind all of his letters was this, you know, incredibly sensitive and large heart. The things that impressed me the most are his letters and diaries because his whole character comes through in them. His ability to enter into the feelings of others, his ability to um, see all sides of a question. But more than that, I would say certainly his integrity. He was a, really a man of integrity, a man who did not compromise. Three years after Newman's death, in 1893, Timothy Harrington was holed up in his room in Philadelphia to avoid the blistering cold outside. Timothy had moved to Philadelphia only a few months earlier to attend medical school at the University of Pennsylvania. He couldn't afford to travel home to Wisconsin that winter break. He picked up a copy of John Henry Newman's autobiography to pass the time. And Timothy was really inspired by what he read. So inspired that soon after, he established a Newman Club for Catholic students at his school. It started out very small. This is Patrick Travers. He's the director of the Newman Center at the University of Pennsylvania and Drexel University. It was not, you know, I don't think anything too significant at the beginning. And the, the, the club itself kind of became defunct after the first 15 years or so. But in 1913, a new chaplain arrived. His name was Father Keog, and he is really kind of like a transformative uh, figure in the whole Newman movement around the country. Father Keog first revived the Newman Club at the University of Pennsylvania. He opened a Newman Hall that was a residence for both students and faculty. The Newman Hall even had a chapel. And it had, you know, a lot of life sort of centered around a small community. And uh, that was very much in the model of what Newman himself did at, uh, at Oxford. Then Father Keog traveled around the country, establishing Newman clubs at other universities, both Catholic and secular. They dubbed him Mr. Newman. That was his, his nickname. And he led this role for 20 years of, of being the, uh, the chaplain general for, for all of America. Today, there are thousands of Newman centers across the United States. But you'll find that most students know next to nothing about John Henry Newman. I was talking to another reporter a, a while ago, and uh, her you know, question was, yeah, what does he mean to you know, Catholic students today? And I, 
I sort of felt like she was expecting a really neat answer. And I was like, to be honest with you, I don't think he means much. If you were to ask any of our students, you know, like what, who is here? What does he mean? Like the one thing I, I would hope that they would be able to tell you is our motto here is what his Episcopal motto was, as well as the core at core loquitur, the heart speaks to heart. That that always has like a double dimension. It's it's sort of God's heart that speaks to our heart and in that sort of intimate space, but it's also a really invitation to uh, to open our hearts one to another. For John Henry Newman's idea of a chaplaincy, it was very much based on interpersonal relationships. That that was sort of the way to to propagate the faith at at his time. He he himself might not, you know, like nobody really knows who who he was. They might be able to know that he was English and and maybe something about his conversion. That spirit of Newman, you know, at our Newman Center, for example, that's what I would hope that they uh, they all could take away. It's funny, I was talking to someone about the concept of Newman Centers, and very few people know anybody, anything about Newman. They know the Newman Center, but they don't, uh, you know, they don't know much about Newman the man. And I think this is a great opportunity for people to come to really know him. And it'll be a challenge because he's, he's hard to read because of the style of writing. But I think if they get to know the man first, they'll be able to understand his writing. We were praying for years for miracles that he might be, as we often said, elevated to the dignity of the altar. And that's exactly what's happened. Thanks be to God. This is Father Darcy from the Pittsburgh Oratory again. For years, his oratory dedicated every Saturday morning Mass to Newman's cause. So I have to believe that that Mass we've been saying every Saturday morning has at least something to do with his, with his canonization. It's wonderful. I mean, I just, I, frankly, I didn't think I'd live to see it. I asked him to what his oratory would dedicate their Saturday Masses now, now that John Henry Newman will be canonized in just a few weeks. We're eager for John Henry Newman to be named a doctor of the church. It occurred to me, maybe we'll just start praying for that. You know, now that he's now, now that he's become a saint, we can maybe we can get him to be a doctor of the church. I don't think that'll be long off. For CNA Newsroom, I'm Kate Bike. That is our show this week. I will be in Rome for the canonization of Blessed John Henry Cardinal Newman, and CNA will keep bringing you news about this great man and his sainthood. Before we end, I just want to leave you with some words of Newman that perhaps will be encouraging to you. He said, I am created to do something or to be something for which no one else is created. I have a place in God's counsels, in God's world, which no one else has. Whether I be rich or poor, despised or esteemed by man, God knows me and calls me by name. God has created me to do him some definite service. He has committed some work to me, which he has not committed to another. I have my mission. I never may know it in this life, but I shall be told it in the next. Somehow I am necessary for his purposes, as necessary in my place as an archangel in his. If indeed I fail, He can raise another, as he could make the stones children of Abraham. Yet I have a part in this great work. I am a link in a chain, a bond of connection between persons. He has not created me for naught. I shall do good. I shall do his work. I shall be an angel of peace, a preacher of truth in my own place, while not intending it if I do but keep his commandments and serve him in my calling. Therefore, I will trust him. Whatever, wherever I am, I can never be thrown away. 
If I am in sickness, my sickness may serve him. In perplexity, my perplexity may serve him. If I am in sorrow, my sorrow may serve him. My sickness or perplexity or sorrow may be necessary causes of some great end which is quite beyond us. He does nothing in vain. He may prolong my life. He may shorten it. He knows what he is about. He may take away my friends. He may throw me among strangers. He may make me feel desolate, make my spirits sink, hide the future from me. Still, he knows what he is about. Let me be thy blind instrument. I ask not to see. I ask not to know. I ask simply to be used. CNA Newsroom is a production of Catholic News Agency, a service of EWTN News. We're produced and edited by Kate Vike and Jonah McKeown. Our executive producer is Kate Vike. Special thanks this week to everybody who talked to us about John Henry Cardinal Newman and to Newman for his intercession. Hasta luego, everybody.